From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler. If you enjoy our program, please take a moment, maybe even right now, to rate our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you downloaded this podcast. It makes a huge difference in helping us grow. Thanks. One of the biggest issues in surgery today, and something we've talked about a little bit in the podcast before, is how to train surgeons and how to do it in a way that takes into account all the new things we've learned about adult learning since surgery residency as we know it was invented over a century ago. In this episode of The Surgery Set, we look into the future with Dr. Gurjit Sandhu. She's a surgical education scientist and assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Michigan. She was the educational developer for postgraduate medical education at Queen's University in Canada before joining the faculty at the University of Michigan in 2013. Her research concentrates on progressive entrustment and graduated autonomy in surgical education. Those are two terms we're definitely going to be hearing more about. More broadly, her work focuses on the scholarship of teaching and learning, specifically looking at professional education, teaching methods, and assessment. Dr. Sandhu also uses her strengths as a qualitative researcher to support her work on social accountability in medical education, health equity and disparities, and global health. I hope you enjoy our discussion. So, Dr. Sandhu, welcome to the surgery set. Thanks so much for coming to join us here in Madison. Thank you. This will be great. To start us off, just tell us how you got here. I assume airplane, but... (laughs) More broadly, what's the career track that brought you to be talking to us about the education of surgeons? That's a great question. So my trajectory has been a bit winding. Um, I grew up in Vancouver, out on the West Coast. A beautiful city. It is fantastic. Yeah. And always seemed to have a passion for education. And mm-hmm. so that took me out to the middle of Canada. I went over to uh, just east of Toronto and pursued my educational degrees and completed my PhD training in with a in education. And I really got interested in curriculum and assessment and found myself working in the faculty of education. And then a really interesting opportunity came up for um, somebody to to work in GME, in graduate medical education. And I thought, I don't really know a lot about medicine, but this sounds like a great opportunity to take my skill set into a new environment. And so being quite forthright, I said, I know some stuff about education. I know nothing about medicine. And they said, great, we know stuff about medicine, not so much about education. It'll be a great marriage. It's a synergy, yeah. It's a synergy. So so that's where I started off and was working in graduate medical education across all specialties for a few years. And this wonderful opportunity came up at the University of Michigan to specialize in surgical education. And there had been a lot of innovation happening in surgery education, and I thought, even better. So this is this will be a great opportunity. So I brought my family along. We moved to Ann Arbor and started looking at surgical education with Rebecca Minter, who is now the chair here at Wisconsin. And we explored teaching and learning in the operating room. And what became really clear was that a lot of that teaching and learning was based on trust. How the faculty members trusted the residents, how much trust the residents were garnering from faculty members. What were they doing to demonstrate that they were worthy of being trusted? And it led us to some qualitative interviews around the country, uh, which then led to us assessing this intraoperatively. 
and which has brought us to this point of looking at EPAs, Entrustable Professional Activities. And that sort of breaks down into two domains then, right? You call it entrustment and entrustability, the sort of two sides of a trust relationship? Yes. So that's been really interesting to explore. So we think about trust often as a one-way relationship. Do I trust this person? But what we have found in surgical education is really about a dual relationship, about both sides of that partnership. So the faculty have to be willing to look for ways to trust the resident. So they are transferring responsibility and responsibility and trust to this trainee. And they're doing that because they, yes, they're responsible for the patient before them on the table, but they're also responsible for future patients that this trainee needs to care for. So helping this trainee build that skill set while under supervision is important. On the other side of that relationship is the trainee. So the trainee can't just coast. They can't just show up and follow the lead of the faculty member. What they need to do is demonstrate that they are ready to be awarded with more responsibility. And we call that entrustability. Are you showing your behaviors that will earn you more trust? Are you coming prepared to ask great questions? Are you coming prepared to problem solve in this case? Are you coming with a plan? And so when a faculty member detects those behaviors, they are then willing to give more entrustment to the trainee. It's really cool. I mean, I think it just formalizes something that obviously has been a part of surgical training forever, or at least as long as I've been around, which is, you know, if you want to do more in the operation, which presumably you do as a surgical trainee, you know, you have to demonstrate those behaviors that are going to convince the attending to let you do things. I remember attendings, you know, who, if they walked in the room and you didn't have the x-rays of the patient up on the monitor, you did nothing for the case. And that was their way of sort of enforcing to you that there are certain things you have to demonstrate that you're, you're doing and ways that you have to demonstrate that you're engaged in the case. Mm-hmm. And you've now formalized that relationship into these EPAs, which are entrustable professional activities. Correct. Correct. So often the assessments, and you can probably vouch for this, often the assessments that have been a part of training programs are checklists. You know, can the resident complete a handoff? Can the resident insert a central line? And those are, while they're helpful, they don't tell the complete story about the resident's skill sets. They don't tell the complete story about, can this resident be trusted to care for a patient? Do I trust this resident to care for my mom if she comes in with an appendicitis, right? So these are, these are questions that we need to be, we need to be thinking about. So the EPAs let us think about more of a holistic sense and move away from that granular assessment. They move away from this checklist idea to backing off and say, if I can look at the core set of activities that this resident needs to be able to complete by graduation, then we start to think about assessment in a different way. We start to think about trust in a different way and transferring that responsibility. And residents really become the leaders in their own education. The residents will then look for opportunities where they can advance um, how much responsibility they have, how they're leading the team, their plans that they're coming up with, because they know that if they want to be more autonomous earlier in the safety net of training, they need to be actively involved in this process. So this really forms sort of a framework on which to do the so-called competency-based education that we've talked a lot about on this podcast and, and obviously like a big conversation broadly in surgery of moving away from saying, you know, if you want to be a surgeon, you go to a hospital, you train for five years, and then you're a surgeon towards this model of you go and you 
demonstrate that you're competent as a surgeon, and maybe even in some future iteration, get out in four years. At least now we're going to be moving towards saying, like, you, you have to be able to do these things in order to graduate. Right. But it's always been a little vague, like, what those things are and exactly how you measure them and how will you really know if you're competent. And so this sort of provides a way to do that, right? Yes. Let's think of EPAs as part of a competency-based framework, which really is looking at your endpoint. And as you said earlier, what do we expect a graduating general surgeon to be able to do when they finish training? And so there are sort of a core set of tasks we might think about, knowing that there are many more things that this graduating surgeon will be able to do or will learn to do. But for now, what is that core set? So an example of an EPA might be to evaluate and manage a patient with uh, blunt or penetrating trauma. Or another one could be evaluate and manage a patient with gallbladder disease. And wrapped up in each of those EPAs are your preoperative decision making. And if you decide to take this patient to the operating room, all the stuff that happens intraoperatively. And then the care that happens after this patient leaves the OR. So all of that is a part of this task about the work that the resident needs to accomplish. And what's great about that is this, all of this work is observable. There's no guessing. There's no implicit stuff that happens. You've observed it. You can vouch for it. And it's written down, right? And so the resident like knows what you're evaluating too, yes. right? They know what they're supposed to be able to do. Yes. So to that point, there's, we want to create a shared mental model. So there are explicit behaviors that the resident needs to demonstrate, and those are written down. And there's faculty development and resident development that can happen to help make that part of a shared mental model about what those behaviors are, these expected behaviors. So if you're a level one, if you're, you're early in training, you're just starting your exposure to some of these tasks, then you would look at those expected behaviors and say, okay, I see that I'm at a level one. How do I get myself to these expected behaviors at a level two? And you can imagine that residents who are able to accomplish those behaviors more quickly would get more autonomy more quickly. And so as you mentioned earlier, we could hypothesize that some residents would be able to complete those EPAs in four years as opposed to five. And so that gets at that sort of time variable notion. Whether or not that's a, a reality in, the, in our context, in the USA context, I'm not sure. But what we could say is that if you can complete that task earlier, then within, still within that five years, you would get more autonomy at the end of your training so that the first time you do this independently isn't after June 30th right. when you're independent. I think that, I mean, you sort of brought it up earlier. It's such a great point. Like our responsibility as attendings is for the patient that we're caring for but it's also for all the future patients of the people that we train. Like, I never thought about it in that way before, that, like, actually, I'm responsible for the patients of my trainees. And that sort of lets me get my head around this idea of entrustment more. Because I, you know, as a junior faculty member, I think there's actually, like, sort of a third variable for me, right? Like, I have to trust the resident. The resident has to demonstrate to me that they're capable of being trusted, right? But I also have to trust myself to be teaching it right and to understand exactly how to do it when I myself am now frequently doing you know operations independently for the first time I mean less so now I've been out for a few years but I remember when I first got out you know like the first time you do anything as the only person in the room it's it's hair raising and I, I thought back to all the the opportunities I'd had to do that in training and I was so grateful for those those times when the when the attending 
you know, sat in the corner and just kind of let me figure it out, but was available to ask because when they stop being available to ask it, things get very different. You remind me of a great meme. There's a, uh, there's a cat with your, I get that a lot. Do you get that one? (laughs) (laughs) I just remind people of memes. Yeah. That's so funny. So there's a great meme where there's a cat with, you know, with their hair up on its end. And it says that moment when you, you look for the attending and you realize you are the attending. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of this hair raising moment. Yeah. So going back to this idea of EPAs and developing that trust. So while we want to assess for these core activities, what we're also looking for is exactly what you said. Can we trust this trainee to ask for help? Can we trust this trainee to know her or his limits? And so when this person does go out into training, you trust that they will ask their colleagues for help, especially early on when they're going to see things that they may not have seen in where they, where they were trained. And as an observer in the operating room, I have frequently seen this. I've seen it with junior faculty and I've seen it with senior faculty where they encounter something that's unusual. They encounter a problem or this patient is presenting with something that is not, that's not typical. So they call in a colleague and the colleague comes in and they problem solve together or maybe they help them get past a certain point in the operation and then they thank each other and the faculty member carries on. That is a part of of entrustment. You trust that this faculty, the resident who will become a faculty member will know when to ask for help. Right. So it's not completely synonymous. Like entrustability and autonomy are not the same, right? Like if you, to be totally trustworthy, you should not be completely autonomous, right? You should be calling for help when you are in trouble. You got it. Yeah. You got it. So you mentioned earlier that junior faculty may be a little bit more reluctant, maybe, to pass over this trust. So that's been a question that's been raised to us. So Dr. Minter and I have been working on this together. And we've had it raised that people say, well, I bet it's the junior faculty who are not transferring trust as well as senior faculty. So we tested for that. Hmm. And so what we found was that that does not hold true. We have found junior faculty who are advancing a tremendous amount of trust to their trainees because they say things like, I've been there. I know what it feels like not to be entrusted. I remember what that's like. I remember what that's like. So I'm going to let you go because I am confident with this operation until I feel like it's not safe for you or the patient. And I feel like I don't trust myself to be able to correct what might happen. Mm -hmm. And so we see junior faculty giving a lot of leash. And then we also see some junior faculty who are, who are a lot more um, reluctant. So it's all over the map. We also, interestingly, see senior faculty with decades of experience who are not giving any leash to the residents, hmm. who practice the same way every single time, regardless of the level of the trainee. And when we've asked those faculty members what's going on, they say things like, I've seen too much. I know what could go wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to do things the same way that I've always done because it's best for the patient. And then we see some senior faculty who give a lot of opportunity. And so it really is a lot of variability. And what we're hoping is that this shared mental model of trust in this relationship and understanding that you're caring for patients today, but also tomorrow will help faculty flex more. We're not talking about going back to the quote unquote good old days, which were not, as you said, the good old days, the days when attendings would be at home in bed while the residents were sort of figuring it out on their own at night. 
a time that I think has justifiably been moved past and hopefully we don't go we'd never go back to because it's it's not like you learn well without supervision right Mm -hmm. all you learn is bad habits and reinvention of the wheel and like we're not talking about a place where residents are completely independent right we're talking about appropriate safe supervision so being available to your residents but learning to scale back so surgeons go into surgery because they like to operate right? So it's really hard for a surgeon to stop operating, to put your hands on the bedside and watch someone else operate when you know you could probably do it more quickly, more efficiently, right? and you kind of like doing it, yeah, right? Yeah. So this really is about thinking about supervision in a different way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. This is starting to happen, right? I mean, like the, these EPAs, there are five of them. Currently there are and five. And they're being piloted around the country, including here and, and with you guys. Right. So there are 28 institutions who are participating in this pilot. There are five EPAs that the American Board of Surgery has partnered with um, uh, APDS and ACS and RRC and have come up with these five EPAs that... and. Every institution that's partnering will uh, practice two, will implement two of these EPAs. And what's exciting about it is that there's been, uh, innovation is being encouraged. So every place has to come up with how exactly they're going to assess this EPA. So there's been um, a scale that's been uh, recommended with low level of supervision all the way up to supervising others. But how are you going to operationalize that? That's kind of exciting. Every institution is going to try it out, and we're going to look at best practices. And then the broader rollout would be sort of adopting a single standard, right, so that every hospital is going to sort of play by the same rules eventually. But this is sort of that formative phase where people are being allowed to experiment and try things and and define the future. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming to talk to us today and uh, for being a guest on the podcast and, and for revolutionizing surgical education. Thank you. Next time on The Surgery Set, my guest is Dr. Seymour Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is one of the true pioneers in surgery and the longtime editor of one of the world's leading surgery textbooks, Schwartz's Principles of Surgery. Last year was Dr. Schwartz's 60th year on the faculty of the University of Rochester, where he operated for many years before moving into what he calls his post-operative years, in which he became a world-renowned cartographer and a great champion of the humanities in medicine, after not reading a novel until he was a doctor in the Korean War. It's a fascinating discussion with a singular voice in modern surgery. We look forward to sharing it with you. Last, I want to thank everyone who participated in our online survey. The winner of the survey prize, that wonderful water bottle, goes to listener Tim Mowry of Point Pleasant Beach, New Jersey. The survey may be closed, but if you have any feedback, we still would love to hear it. Thanks so much. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. 
In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.